can a butterfly ever go back to being a caterpillar? What happens when healthcare professionals participate in change? And is a goal the same thing as a finish line? Welcome to the Transformative Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Chobatar. I serve as publisher and editor-in-chief of Advent Health Press. We're trying something a bit different with this healthcare series. Often, podcasts are created after a book is released, but this time, we're going to share the book's concepts before they're published as a work in progress. At this midpoint in our podcast series, let me take a few extra moments to give you a brief bio of our authors. Dr. Jeffrey Kuhlman is Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health Orlando. Before joining Advent Health, he served for 30 years as a Navy physician. He spent 16 years in the White House, serving in several roles, including physician to the President of the United States, director of the White House Medical Unit, White House physician, and senior flight surgeon for Marine One. Dr. Coleman is triple board certified in aerospace, family, and occupational medicine. He's board certified in medical management, was awarded a certificate in traveler's health, and holds credentials as a certified professional in patient safety. He's also a certified physician executive. Our other author, Daniel Peach, serves as Director of Clinical Transformation at Advent Health Orlando. He's a registered osteopath in the United Kingdom. Peach has served as a business executive, a safety and security expert, and has worked with elite athletes on performance improvement. In every role, he has seen the value of relationships, and he recognizes that the best data and technology can be meaningless without a personal approach to care. In today's episode, which is entitled, Change Isn't Transformation Until It's Permanent, we're going to hear Dr. Jeffrey Coleman and Daniel Peach as they discuss head scores, sepsis, and the life cycle of a butterfly. We're lucky enough to live in Florida. And it's really interesting when I first moved here that the main wildlife that's here are insects, they're everywhere. But it's something beautiful about it as well, that in the early mornings, you've got that slight dampness that will come out and the grass has got a little bit of dew. And then as the sun starts to come out, it starts to dry out. And then you start to see the insects rise. And there's one that's always caught my eye, and that's the dragonfly. You have those beautiful iridescent colors that come out when the sun shines on them as they rise out of nowhere. And that always sort of links back to what we're trying to bring out about that transformation, about change. And the dragonfly is, is one of those that is all about change. It moves through stages that go from that, that egg to the nymph to the adult dragonfly. And you can't go back. They can't go back to the egg. Once they've made the change, they're committed to it. They move on and they progress. And, and that's part of what we've tried to build into the pathways and, and living and looking at transformation. It's permanent. It's not a temporary thing. And it, it's something that we generally see that the word of transformation is, is used a lot and it's often misused. All transformation is change, but not all change is transformation. I mean, it sounds like common sense, but 
the most important part of transformation is that sustain element. It's about becoming the dragonfly. Don't just live as the nymph and go back to the egg. The element that we've found that most change, most transformation falls down on is on that sustain element. You can't skip over it. And otherwise, if you, if you do, you'll just keep going back to where you started. What I hear is the dragonfly is the official mascot of transformation. Absolutely. So the dragonfly transformation is drastic change, dramatic change. And through each of the phases of the transformation of the change, it's permanent and you, you can't slide back into um, a previous stage. Once a larvae, once a nymph, you can't go back to being an egg. No. You can't undo transformation. No. So with transformation, everyone has to be a participant. I think we've all been aware of different performance improvement projects and they make rapid cycle improvement. And where they typically fail is in the sustaining phase of it, where you go back a few months later and it's back to how it was. And it's not because it wasn't a right idea. It was because it wasn't the right um, methodology. It wasn't using true transformation um, that changes the practices and behaviors of those involved. No, it hasn't become that cultural aspect. It hasn't become part of the living, breathing cycle that's there. And we, we know as humans, we, we do what's easiest. You know, it, it's trying to put the, the, milk back, the milk lid back on afterwards. It's an effort. And if I can get away with not doing it, I'll just leave it off. And we've, we're the same sort of thing. It, it's pouring water from a bottle into a glass and then just pouring it back again. You've not achieved anything. You've not gone through the cycle. You've, you've got to commit to what's there and not be open-ended and not be empty about it. There's got to be a focus, a dedication, and um, a commitment to that. And it's got to be sustainable. So staff on the front lines, they have to be empowered to create and adjust what they do and what's being tracked. They have to have the authority to consistently input yes. key measures, key observations, and importantly, it has to be embedded into their workflow. It can't be a separate tacked on, takes twice as long to, to do it and actually to do it new as to uh, doing it now. Um, and then people, they, um, they actually like being accountable for their own measures. Yeah, they can. They, it's their self-success. Yeah, and, and if you have those elements, then the change is powerful and sustainable. With this approach, it's not just goals, just objectives, just activities, because the goals are are never the finish lines. No, and if we if we if we set those goals, people will reach that, and they'll stop at that. And it's about ever extending that that element. That the goal is to continue and to expand and, and, to, and to move through all of those phases, but to continue beyond it. You know, don't, don't just set your, your goal at, at a ceiling level. Let's reach for the sky. There, let's permanently keep extending to, to expand out and to keep the movement going forward, to continue to change, to continue to transform. So when I think about changes and transformation until it's permanent, I think about three of the biggest challenges, three of the biggest clinical challenges we have in healthcare. So how can we embed the 
algorithm into the workflow. So we go with chest pain. We know chest pain is 10% of adults' presentations to the emergency department, and by far the highest number of unanticipated uh, admissions to the hospital. So with chest pain, the change that became permanent was when um, it was embedded into the workflow. The heart score, um, which is the history, the EKG, the age, uh, the risk factors for heart disease, and the blood test, that's the troponin, that's the acronym of the head score that helps stratify into the different risk. Every doctor kind of knew about a stratification tool, and there's several ones, but when you taught to a common one that they all had agreed on, that was some somewhat of change. But the, the dramatic change, the transformation, moving to that next phase of the um, developmental cycle was when it actually was in, embedded into their electronic medical record. Well, you, you think that during a normal working day for a physician, you're making hundreds of decisions in one go. And, you know, in, in, in medical school, in nurse training, in there, there are all these acronyms that are thrown out and people learn things for tests. They go through those and, and they're able to regurgitate those. And if you use it every day, then it tends to stick in one format or another. But with every other thing that's being piled on, it's not always top of mind. And being able to integrate these into that workflow process embedded into the electronic medical record to make it part of the process, part of the culture that's there, means that it becomes natural. It's it's like always putting your left sock on before your right sock. It's something you do every day. You're not sure why you do it now, but 100 years ago, it was because of XYZ. That was the right way of doing it for you. Yeah. So what this does is it takes, in the electronic medical record, it brings it top of mind, the screen in front of you. Yeah. For most of our family members, that's top of mind, is the <laughs> screen that you're looking at. And the EKG is from data that's already in the electronic medical record. The age is, that's the first thing they ask you when you walk into the hospital. And usually that, the date, the birth date doesn't change that you give them. So that's, that's part of the permanent record. And then the risk factors, the ones we know about in the record, and the physician can just validate that those are the accurate ones. And then the blood test, so the auto-population of the objective data, the E-A-R-T. And then the subjective part is the history that gives you that this is an unlikely clinical story that they're telling, or which would be a zero points, or this is the most classic crushing chest pain radiating to my left neck that uh, came on upon exertion. So that sure sounds like um, heart related. So then that's um, the likely scenario of the two. And then, then there's always the choice of, I'm not sure, you know, not dismissive, but not a slam dunk. So that's in the uh, the one category, so it's and, the point system. And, and that that's really important in there. That as part of that decision making, you're not you're not taking away that gestalt, that ability to to speak with the patient, to understand the patient, and get the feeling of you know I'm not quite sure what it is, but there's something not quite right with what this patient's telling me. That I think this is more serious than they're really indicating. They're, they're concealing something. And that's where that human interaction, that ability to be a true physician, to be a true nurse comes out and be able to suck that information out of the patient and give them the flexibility. Even though it's ingrained and we've pulled the data out, we're now adding that other context to it, which is part of that, that changeover point. And so joining the subjective and the objective data 
um, in one synergistic way that I think that embodies synthetical thinking. Absolutely. That's uh, put together and that that makes the most clinical sense as opposed to putting all your eggs in one basket of like just the EKG that we know is good information and somebody can go in and analyze that, but it doesn't tell the whole, whole story. No, this, this is the the human thinking process. This yeah. is not a machine. It's not AI that, that just takes all of the data that's been fed into it and then spits that back out. Yeah. Um, th- this is understanding what's there and then putting those human elements on top of it. Yeah. So the, the American healthcare system relies heavily upon if I have a unplanned medical problem that I didn't anticipate, the structure that's in place that evaluates it best is in the emergency department. Yes. You have specialists standing by who have all the tools to, to diagnose and to actually start the interventions um, as, soon as, uh, as soon as possible, as soon as practical. So the second high-risk, high-volume condition is syncope. Yep. So syncope is um, two things. It's loss of consciousness, and then it's all loss of postural tone. So that person that is um, standing one moment and the next moment they're laying on the floor and they don't remember how they got there. So with syncope, uh, the same thing is they get taken to the emergency department. We had um, uh, de- uh, worked with the physicians to develop an algorithm and the algorithm um, that came, we came up with was a stratification tool called the head score. And the head score is actually unique to the uh, transformative methodology because they had to design a tool um, that previously wasn't out there. So innovation can be a new product. It can also be a new process or it can be a new idea. So the new idea was every everyone that went to medical school and takes a test, there were different uh, scoring system or different sets of rules yep. that talked about um, somebody with syncope, uh, do you need to keep them or is it safe to, to discharge them? Um, and there's about six different scoring systems. The three that are the most well-known um, are called the Rose Rules, the San Francisco Rules, and then the Europeans have the OSIL Rules, O-E-S-I-L. Yep. So with those three, they all look at nine different uh, parameters. Um, so the team came up with, what if we took all nine of the parameters and if, if um, we aggregate those together, then if they have any of those 27 things, that would be a red flag and, hey, let's pay attention to this. So that makes a lot of sense. Conversely, if you have zero of the 27 red flags, then it should be pretty reassuring that they can safely be discharged and, again, followed up with a doctor within 72 hours to figure out what caused that uh, syncopal episode. And I I think that the discharge is the important part, or one of the the many important parts as well, to to be able to look at there has to be that that continuity in care that goes through. Yeah, the handoff. Yeah, Uh, and making that easier is one of the potential barriers we saw is that if we could put a a magic button there that when the the provider then hits that 
what it'll do is help to set up that appointment. So, so on the electronic medical record, on the electronic medical they record, hit, they activate the magic button. They give an order that tells the care coordination center to set up the appointment with a particular specialty within 72 hours. Yeah, and then be able to to reflect that that appointment's set up back to both the the physician and to be able to give that to the patient when they walk out the door. And that helps connect that care so that the the physician then knows, okay, this patient's going on to somewhere where they're going to get the next level of care that's necessary for them. But also the patient feels that, hang on, there's something I need in my time of need. They're, they're giving me somewhere that to go to someone to be able to help find out what the problem was and to be able to extend that care on so that they're happy and content that you're not just being left out. Yeah, so most of the time we just tell them we'll follow up with a doctor within a week. Yeah. And that was good enough. And that's kind of like giving somebody a bus pass. Here you go. Here's your bus pass. Use it. Whenever you feel like it. Yeah, when you feel like it. And we thought that was enough. But what's different is... Well, here's actually your ticket from point A to point B on this day at this time, and it's it's um, guaranteed that you'll get taken care of, and so that um, dramatically changes it, um, and that's available in the electronic medical record, um, both for the heart score and for the head score. So the head score, uh, it also played upon that uh, physicians were able to remember oh, let's use the heart score for chest pain or a cardiovascular um, presentation. Let's use the head score for uh, syncope, which many of us think of uh, kind of above the neck um, uh, condition that that happens. So the head score was also pretty easy to remember. The science underneath of it was the 27 parameters. But if you group them into four categories, it goes into history. It goes into uh, the EKG. It goes um, factors in the age, and then it factors into uh, the diagnostic testing. And physicians didn't have to remember all 27 of the parameters, but embedding it into the workflow, they could see it, and it would auto-populate. For example, under the diagnostic, it would do the blood level of either the hemoglobin or the hematocrit, uh, the blood sugar uh, value. And... They would be they would be reassured that I'm not missing anything, and that that's key to all of these. Again, these are aid memoirs for people to help support their their normal processes that are there, and they help reinforce the the consensus that's there, so that you make sure you're not missing a step out, you've not forgotten anything, and if it does veer off into the not standard, it gives you the tools to be able to follow down that pathway and to highlight, okay, this is somewhere I need to, to go and there's validity in why I'm going down that route and not just ordering tests for the sake of it. There's a valid reason behind this because this patient doesn't present as they would do normally and we've, we maybe have something else that we need to work on and we need to focus on to be able to help this patient now when they need it. So the head score was some innovation. Yes. And one person's innovation is another person's disruption. So the, innov- the innovative approach of, okay, we're taking three other nationally published concepts that you know, doctors have bought off. They, each of those three have a sensitivity, a specificity. They have a positive and negative predictive value. So if you take three different tools, you take the three different scoring systems, and you use them together in epidemiology, we call that parallel testing. So if you do all three at the same time, that's, 
that's uh, parallel testing. And the best example I can think of is uh, the first time that your spouse tells you, hey, I think I may be pregnant. You both run down to the drugstore and you buy three different pregnancy tests <laughs> and you uh, do the testing on it. If any one of those three is positive, you're going to go see the doctor and you know, you're not going to say, well, I'm a third pregnant. Yes. <laughs> so it's kind of an all or nothing is if any of the three, because they, they don't all have 100% uh, predictive value. So that so we do we do three different methods or we do parallel testing um, when we want to make sure we're not missing anything. Uh, for example, in cancer screening, we may do a mammogram. May, we may do um, a self self breast exam. We may do a healthcare breast exam. Any of those that are positive, we're gonna um, pursue. Right, so, yeah, yeah. So the the um, the the other method is if we do one test. And then based on that results, we do another test. And based on that results, we do another test. And so that's called series, series testing. And so the head score is not based on series testing. It's based on parallel testing. Um, and series testing is not when we don't want to miss anything, but when we want to absolutely be sure of the diagnosis. Yeah. And the example that we use for that is um, HIV testing. So HIV testing we have two different methodologies. We have the ELISA testing, E-L-I-S-A, and then we have the Western blot uh, confirmatory. So we do one test first, and then if that's uh, positive or suspicious, then we do the follow-up testing, which is the confirmatory. And we do not sit down and talk with the patient until we have the results of the series testing. Right. So the, uh, the, dis- the discussion of the three different scoring systems, the head score is an ac- aggregate score that they can remember and showing that the, um, the sensitivity and the specificity actually increases. It increases your sensitivity when you do the parallel testing, appeals to the um, physician's head, and then um, you appeal to their heart with uh, doing the right thing for patients, um, and you appeal to their hand by giving them something to do on the screen in front of them that actually remembers all 27 of those parameters and reassures. We've looked at all 27. They don't have any of them. It's safe to transition this patient to um, to outpatient for further care. And I, I think that's one of the other important elements that we've we've come up with, that you, you've got to be able to touch base with them right the way through and you know we've 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 looked at what happened with chest pain we've looked at what happened with syncope but you've got that other one that's that's the burning issue that's always there and that's in every healthcare environment throughout the world and and that's with sepsis and that's one of those really big games and one that we looked at and continue to look at carefully and how do we help Work. How can we bring up a pathway? How can we bring up a process that will help the um, the physicians and the nursing staff to staff to identify these patients? And sepsis is one of those where you want to capture this early. We want to know that 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 patient's sick almost before they really realise it themselves. And there are several tests that are available, but none that really are definitive to be able to say this is a septic problem with the patient. And um, we looked at various routes, and one that really struck us was the utilisation of the new score that was primarily used in the UK. And with that, it's about identifying that patient by using primarily vital signs 
to highlight that this patient is in a progressive sepsis state. And by utilizing a scoring system similar to the heart score and the head score to be able to equate a particular clinical issue to a score to help direct the care that's necessary at that specific time, but also to look at the progression of that, that condition. So when a patient presents, they'll be given an initial scoring system that says, okay, this patient is a little bit sick. As they spend time in the ED, they start to progress. They're rescored, and we can say, okay, this patient is now getting worse. We can then initiate the various bundles that are necessary to help with those patients. So putting the fluids in, drawing the anti uh, putting antibiotics in, drawing bloods, et cetera, that goes with the bundle. And start to up their level of care as equated to the scoring system. And as we reach a point where they've reached that septic state, then we can we can highlight more that we've we've got a major issue and, and we can bring all of the, the big guns in to help with it. But as, also as well is that we often forget that by by putting a system in place, by putting a scoring system there, uh, a method of identifying patients, we can also use those to show when the patient's getting better. Because so often with with illness, we know when someone's sick but we don't always know when they're better. And by use of something like the new score, we can see when that patient is getting better because their scoring system starts to decrease as well. And that helps to identify we're actually on the right end of this now, that the patient's getting better. We can change the medications that we, we work with and we know when we can actually release that patient home and in a state where they are gonna get better and they're not gonna return. So change isn't, isn't transformation until it's permanent. Right. Sepsis, I think, is still the leading cause of death in hospitalized patients. Yes. Not just in the United States, but in, in a Western civilization. Yeah. The kitchen <laughs> sink has been thrown at, at sepsis. And a lot of the effort centered around what they call sepsis alert. Yeah. So... So part of the systemic inflammatory response. Yep. Uh, so some of those um, subtle changes or not subtle changes in the uh, uh, heart rate or the level of consciousness or the, uh, uh, the laboratory tests, for example, the blood sugar. So a sepsis alert tells you, hey, the conditions are right. The conditions are right that there may be sepsis, but it's not definitive. You have to have the presence of an infection to kind of validate that. Yes. So what we found during the um, uh, the design portion of the sepsis, um, the transformation uh, methodology for sepsis, was our physicians brought up that the alert just tells you, hey, the conditions are, are, are right, but it doesn't tell you something's actually going on, and it doesn't tell you which is, which is more likely. So what they gravitated to was actually the new score, so the National Early Warning System that had been developed 15 years ago by the Royal College of Physicians on the other side of the ponds, and then um, rapidly adapted by the National Health Service, um, NHS, for the, um, the United Kingdom. And they don't have a lot of tornadoes there, but we have a lot of tornadoes uh, in the heartland. And a tornado alert just says, hey, this front, it, weather front is impacting this weather front, the conditions are right. But it doesn't tell you, hey, there's actually a tornado spotted. But when you switch to a tornado warning, then the tornado warning says, hey, there's a tornado that's spotted and it may be headed your direction. So 
the news score that later was adapted to the news two with a just with the adaption of the vital signs and the level of consciousness in a objective uh, quantifiable way with like a single digit score that everyone could communicate easy it would tell you sepsis has actually been, been spotted in this patient you need to take action now you need to either get into your tornado shelter or since it's a it's a sepsis um, warning you need to uh, immediately start the treatment on this patient and what we found for the for the for the for the blast for the fluids and the antibiotics if you order the test it doesn't do any bit of good yeah the only thing that helps is you have to start dripping the fluids or squeezing the fluids into the patient giving them the volume back to put the fluids through the vital organs and the rest of the body and you have to have the antibiotics on board moving the uh, the medication to the uh, point of the infection uh, to neutralize and kill the uh, the microbes the organism causing the infection so the best way to do that is the power plan so the sepsis power plan not only is an organized way for the physician to know hey I'm taking the six things that's needed to take care of this patient with sepsis but it also sends out the message to to everyone in the department now and also that's going to future take care of this patient after they've gone to the intensive care unit or they've gone to the inpatient. You're, you're right. And it, it was interesting when we were developing this that one of our, one of the directors of one of our emergency departments um, put a great analogy to this. And he said, this is, this is a little bit like sitting in a, in a room and you're sat with a group of other people and you start to smell smoke. Now you have two choices. You can stand up, you can excuse yourself, disappear out and save yourself and watch the room go up in flames without letting people know that, hang on, we could have a fire here. Or you can do the right thing. You can stand up, let everybody know, look, we may have a problem here. I can smell smoke. There may be fire. It could just be smoke, but I don't know. They could put, then pull on the fire alarm so that you let everybody in the building know, look, we think there may be a problem and get everybody out so that they can be taken care of. What's the right way to do this? And by using an early warning system, an early warning indication that's there, in particular with sepsis, it's, it's not about saying, well, my clinical judgment says maybe ands, ifs, and buts. This is about letting everybody know, whether you're um, nursing staff, whether you're a physician, look, this patient is not, is not well. I believe this is sepsis, and I'm going to have the courage of my convictions to let everybody else know. I'm going to pull the fire alarm at this point to make sure that we all do the very best as a team to help this patient get through this really serious condition that's there. So the, the change becomes permanent when the front line exhibits the practices and behaviors of, hey, they have chest pain. I don't just wonder what's causing it, but I've used the heart score. The change becomes permanent when for a patient that passes out and has a syncopal episode, they don't just say, I wonder what caused them to do that, but they use the head score. Yeah. And the change becomes permanent when for patients that have sepsis, that the early warning systems are firing off saying this patient has sepsis and this is the patient you need to take care of more than anyone else and you need to use this the sepsis power plan because that's what saves lives um, and that becomes the uh, the permanent change and and that's 
that's where the healthcare, the, the, the healthcare professionals really feed into the cycle. They, have, they, they identify the problem, they, they have accountability for that problem. But by feeding in, that, that feeds their passion, that, that part that at the moment is, is not necessarily always there in their work. That's what they strive for. It's, it's enabling them to engage directly in the design that we've got, to use their expertise, and, and that helps stoke their fire of enthusiasm. And they're ready to participate because we're ready to, to point back in there, to get the attention back towards their prime purpose. And that then becomes that cultural transformation. That concludes this episode of Transformative Healthcare, a limited edition 14-part podcast series. I've been your host, Todd Chobatar. To discover other great resources to help you feel whole in mind, body, and spirit, please visit us online at adventhealthpress.com. While you're there, remember to sign up for our free newsletter that includes healthy living tips, leadership wisdom, and regular giveaways. Tune in for our next episode, where Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach will be discussing how to save $32 million, the HeartScore project, and a massive security threat. Thanks for joining us.